today. But joining me to talk more about what the numbers to this point are showing us is Daniel Coombs, a UBC professor in mathematics. He also does extensive work in modeling disease. And Daniel, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks for having me again. I uh, wanted to talk to you about the numbers. and I know we are bracing uh, for even uh, more high numbers a bit later on today. Uh, with the fact that here we are this far into the pandemic, we have more active cases uh, right now than at any other point during the pandemic. What does that say to you about where we are with the numbers? Well, I, I think the, the concerning thing at this point is um, we've been seeing uh, sustained growth really since back in the summer. Um, didn't seem so concerning at first, um, maybe a little bit of a lull in September, but then right back onto the same trajectory, really um, up to where we are now. Um, the restrictions that were put in by Dr. Henry two weeks, nearly two weeks ago, uh, we should, if they are going to have an effect, start to see that effect um, really within the next few days. Uh, I think the numbers on Monday will be especially interesting to, to look at to see if there's really been uh, a leveling off or a downturn as a result of, um, you know, the restrictions on household gatherings and that kind of thing. Right, because I think we tend to, to forget a little bit that while we're seeing these high numbers right now, these are still the numbers that are coming from what happened before those restrictions came into place. That's right. Um, the, I, I think of it a little bit as the epidemic has some sort of hidden momentum. Uh, yeah, and when, when restrictions are put in, you certainly don't expect to see uh, changes right away. If you do, then that was due to something else that changed um, before the restrictions were put in. And how concerning is it then when we look at the numbers, not only how quickly... Even if we look at how long it took us to get to, say, 10,000 cases, and then the amount of time to double that was, was much, much smaller. Uh, how concerning is it that we're seeing that, that doubling and seeing the increase in people who are, who are hospitalized and in intensive care? Yeah, it, it's deeply concerning. And, and as, as we were just saying, um, you know, the, the, the momentum applies to the hospitalizations as well. Um, you know, the hospitalizations that are happening today are largely people that were infected two to three weeks ago. And so those, those people are already, you know, so two, two weeks from now, the people who are infected today or three weeks, they're, they're going to be showing up in the hospitalization numbers. Um, and so the, the increase in hospitalizations we have to project is, is going to continue. Even if the current restrictions were really successful, we would still expect hospitalizations to grow for, you know, some more time um, from, from where we are now. And I know it's not as simple as saying that we're testing more, so we're going to find more people in the community that have uh, this virus. But how much of a role does increased testing and testing different groups play in trying to figure out exactly how this is spreading at the, and the rate at which it is spreading? Yeah, so, so the most important thing about testing is that people who have symptoms or otherwise wish to, see, to, to, to seek a tester are able to get hold of one so that they can know what they need to do, um, you know, to reduce transmission if the test is positive or, or to, um, to not have to do that if, 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 uh, if the test comes up negative. Um, I, I don't place myself too much weight on the test positivity rate. Uh, sometimes you'll see that reported. Um, the problem with that is it's difficult to understand. Because it's a fraction, you kind of have to understand the numerator and the denominator of the fraction, and, and, and the numerator and the denominator can, can both change fairly rapidly. Um, 
with with that said, when it goes up, I don't. I never think, oh, that's a good thing. I cer- certainly agree that uh, it, it, it's it can be an indicator of a problem um, or things getting worse. But right now, we don't need that indicator. We see that the cases are at high numbers. A lot of people are becoming infected in the province, especially in the lower mainland. Um, and, and that's really the evidence that we need right now. Interesting, because there is to, there does tend to be a lot of focus on that percentage of, of what the infection rate is. And, and again, that kind of goes with the, the mindset of if we're testing more, we're going to have more cases. Uh, but that's interesting that you say that, because a lot of people do uh, look at, well, if we're 2% and less, we're in a good place. Once we see 5% or, or in some places 10%, that's alarming. But, but you're saying that that's not really what we should be focusing the most on? Um, I, I, I see that as secondary to case numbers and hospitalizations as, as kind of how, how I look at things. Um, it, it, the concern is really if, if the percentage is going up because people are not able to access testing in, in, a, in, in, a, in a timely way, that, that's the concern. And, and the WHO way back in the beginning of the epidemic were looking at this. But I think at that point they were still trying to encourage jurisdictions to, uh, to, to roll out um, you know, a, a high degree of testing so so that people could get tested when they needed to. Because that's one of the other questions too, and it might be more of a medical question, but if we're testing, we're still only testing, from what I understand in BC, people who are showing a symptom or symptoms of COVID-19, which opens up the question of, are there people who are asymptomatic who are also spreading the disease, and could that skew the numbers? I, the, there absolutely are people who are asymptomatic. We know that testing um, does not capture everybody who's had this disease. Um, it's extremely hard to estimate uh, in, in British Columbia how many people are infected asymptomatically, perhaps, or very mild symptoms and, or, or otherwise unable to, to, to get a test and be counted. Um, in the early phase of the epidemic, that the, what we call this the ascertainment rate. The ascertainment rate was probably fairly low because, because there were restrictions on who was supposed to get tested back then. A reasonable estimate might be 20%, something like that, from March and April. Um, these days, we, it's, it's very difficult to know. If you ask me to throw a number out there, I'd say you know, somewhere between 50%, maybe, maybe two-thirds of people are getting tested. It's, it's very, very difficult to say at this point, though. What does it say about how the disease spreads, though, when we look at the numbers, and as we've been seeing big numbers for the past few days, that they are concentrated in those two health authorities, the bulk being in the Fraser Health region and followed by Vancouver Coastal? Um, well, I mean, I, I think the, you know, it tells us that the, the disease spreads within within communities. Um, it, it nation, nationwide and and also internationally, we've seen you know outbreaks in in cities. It seems to seems to be you know, there's, there's people have more contacts probably uh, if they're living in in an urban or suburban environment. Um, I think I think the cons- one of the concerns I think in BC at the moment is the Lower Mainland is where it is, um, but you know people travel from the Lower Mainland, Fraser and Vancouver Health Authorities, you know, t- to the island, um, to the interior, to the north, and and I think, you know, I I I, I think um, Premier Horgan yesterday was on the right track when he was trying to discourage people from making non-essential trips um, out of the Lower Mainland. Right. Because do we have evidence or is there a way to show that, in fact, it is people traveling throughout the province that is causing the spread? Um, that's difficult to show because, you know, it's, it's always a little bit difficult to say exactly who infected who. However, um, 
you know, the, the increase in cases, the in recent increase in cases in island health, and it's still very low there, but there has been increasing um, steadily, um, is, you know, it, it's, it's, it's almost too suspicious that it happens after the, the big ramp up in Fraser and Vancouver uh, coastal um, health cases. So I, so I would say, to me, that's that it may not be definitive proof, but there's, there's a, what do you say, a, a smoking gun there. Right. Uh, Daniel, just before I let you go, as you've been looking at these numbers over the past several months, like you said, we got down to the single digits at one point uh, during the summer. What does it say to you, uh, looking at these numbers, that we are at this place now where we're seeing these big increases and these daily increases? Um, essentially, the, the way that we get out of this is we have to reduce contacts. Um, contact tracing, wearing masks, um, wiping down surfaces, all these things are really helpful and they can provide that extra, you know, 10% or 20%. Um, but it's the, it's the reduction of close contacts and being aware that, you know, this is, this is a disease that spreads through the air. And so if you are in a room with somebody trying to minimize that time, trying to use masks um, to reduce the risk just that extra little bit. Um, but we really uh, have to, to all make an effort just to reduce, to reduce the number of contacts we have in our daily lives. All right. We'll leave it there for today. Daniel, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, some new legislation was tabled today that forces current and future federal governments to set climate targets. The goal is to see Canada at a net zero carbon emission state by the year 2050. And joining me on the line to talk more about what was unveiled earlier today is Jonathan Wilkinson, the Minister of Environment and Climate Change. Minister, thanks so much for taking some time with us. Not at all. Thanks for having me on. What does this actually change? Because Canada doesn't have the greatest track record when it comes to meeting climate goals. So what will this change? Well, I would say prior to this bill being introduced or prior to it coming into force, um, there is no legal obligation on the government of Canada to do anything, to set targets, to develop plans or, or any of that. This bill creates legal obligations. It creates predictability in terms of what needs to be done, setting targets, having defined plans, providing progress reports, uh, providing reports to Parliament and Canadians, assessing whether you've met the target or not, having an independent third party do reviews of those. So it essentially puts into place a mechanism that will bind future governments to take climate change seriously. Uh, I would say that it also is something that is part of a broader approach to addressing climate change, which is partly about uh, environmental issues and ensuring that we're avoiding the worst of the climate crisis. But it's also about the economy. It's about growing an economy that's going to thrive in a low-carbon future. Countries around the world are moving this direction. Canada does not want to fall behind. Uh, but when you talk about uh, holding this government and future governments to account, one of the criticisms of this is there aren't really any penalties. Yes, if a government fails to meet the goal, they're going to have to stand up and say we didn't meet the goal. But other than that, what is the penalty? Well, they will have to provide, as I say, uh, progress reports. So two years before the end of a milestone period, they will actually have to provide a report as to whether they're on track and if not, what they're going to do to fix it. When they get to the end of it, they have to assess whether they've made it and provide recommendations if they haven't about what they're going to do. But ultimately, we do live in a democratic society. And any government that gets to the end of a process and has to go before Canadians to say we didn't do what we promised you we were going to do is going to pay the ultimate price, which is they're going to be defeated at the polls. 
that is the ultimate accountability that exists in a democratic system. Uh, why is the, the the first target then, because this is one of the other criticisms, that we, we won't actually see that target until 2030. And if we're in a climate crisis right now, why wouldn't we have a target of 2025 or something much sooner than that? Well, I've heard that criticism. I would say a couple of things to it. The first is um, this, uh, the first target, which is the 2030 target, will have to come into force within six months of this bill becoming law. So there will be a target in place. But I would also say um, folks who make that argument, I think, are, are misunderstanding the structure of the Paris Agreement on climate change. That is focused on targets that are 2030 targets. Every other country that is a party to the Paris Agreement has a 2030 target. The province of British Columbia has a 2030 target. The province of Quebec has a 2030 par- target. The focus has always been on 2030. And now that we're actually looking forward to net zero by 2050, it's how do you evolve beyond the targets in 2030? I would also say that folks, I think, have missed the point around 2025, which is there is a mechanism, an independent mechanism called the Commissioner on Environment and Sustainable Development that is going to review progress every five years. Um, That includes 2025. and, And the commissioner will be able to review progress towards the 2030 target in 2025. Is it fair or does it make sense, though, to use the Paris uh, Agreement as, as, a pl- as a benchmark or even as a goal since, I mean, has any country met their Paris targets? Well, there are many countries that are on the path to achieving their, their Paris targets. Absolutely, there are. Um, you know, Europe has made enormous strides. Many countries have made enormous strides. Um, Canada has made enormous strides through the, the first five years. We have identified the vast majority of the megatons we need to achieve the Paris target. There is a ways to go, and we have promised now that we will go farther than the Paris target, and that is something that I will be bringing forward in the coming weeks is a new climate plan that actually shows exactly how we are going to exceed our Paris targets. Uh, So can you talk a bit about what could be in that plan? I know there was talk today of planting, is it 2 billion trees, about technologies uh, such as carbon capture technologies that could be used in the future. What is actually going to be in that plan? Well, in order, in order to have a plan that will allow us to exceed our, our current target or even to meet our current target, we actually have to look at the sources of emissions across the economy. We have to go after every major source of emission that exists. And that means that we have to go after industrial emissions where carbon capture and hydrogen and other things come into play. We have to go after buildings, so retrofits, which is something that we promised during the election campaign to retrofit existing commercial and residential buildings. And net zero building codes are certainly part of it. Zero electric vehicles, building out infrastructure and incenting the deployment of zero electric vehicles are part of it. Certainly nature-based solutions like planting trees and and, uh, restoring wetlands, which capture and sequester carbon, are part of it. But if we're going to meet um, and exceed now our, our Paris goals, we're going to have to have a very comprehensive approach to climate. And that is what my the, the plan that we have been developing uh, will deliver. Uh, how confident are you that Canada's plan then will work with plans around the world? Because if we look at emissions uh, around the globe, Canada isn't the biggest polluter. It's not the biggest emitter. Uh, we could wipe our emissions off and it wouldn't have a, a huge impact if we're talking about emissions globally. So if we're doing all of this, how confident are you other countries that are the bigger polluters are also going to be doing their part? Well, I think that's an important question, um, and I think it, it's important in the context of how it's framed. Um, so Canada, first of all, I think needs to be a country that looks to achieve its targets if it wants to have any credibility in, in encouraging other countries to, uh, to take substantive action to address the climate issue. And therefore, if you're going to, uh, if you're going to try to, to be a player in the international community on, on ensuring we address climate change, you have to walk the walk. That means you actually have to do the work yourself. 
I would also say that there are some uh, on the conservative side um, that often make the argument that Canada has a relatively small part of global emissions and therefore it doesn't really matter. That's simply not true. Um, we are uh, somewhere between 2 and 3% of global emissions, but we are number two or number three in terms of the per capita emissions that we actually put out. Canada, in that, in that perspective, is one of the worst offenders. And there are lots of reasons for that, including geographic reasons and temperature reasons. But Canada actually has to do its part. It expects other people to. If we are going to be a country that is going to uh, help to address the climate issue, we have to take action ourselves. Uh, you talked about the economy as well, this being part of the economy. And uh, I think the pandemic has shown us, yes, we do care about the environment. We care about climate change and combating climate change. But we're also dealing with uh, a country where many people are unemployed, people don't know what the future is going to hold. Your government hasn't tabled a budget for months. In fact, it's broken the record of how long this country has gone without a budget. What about that part of the equation in that Canadians also want a budget and they want clarity on what this is going to cost and they want to know what their future looks like? Well, I, I think that's fair. Um, I mean, first of all, yes, it's been a record without a budget, but you have to recall that the pandemic came on, came on a week before the budget was going to be presented. So there are certainly circumstances that, that have intervened. The pandemic has certainly consumed attention, and, and rightfully so, and it remains the, the, the highest priority for this government and for provincial and territorial governments across the country. Um, but I certainly think that, uh, that folks expect their governments to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. They expect us to be able to look to address the looming crisis that is climate change, but they also want us to think about doing that in a way that addresses some of the problems that we have right now that are a function of of the pandemic. And that includes ensuring that the work we're going to do on climate creates near-term jobs for people who aren't employed, particularly for young people and for women who have been disproportionately affected by uh, by unemployment during the COVID period. Um, And so we certainly are thinking about that in the context of developing the plan. I also think that people deserve and desire transparency with respect to costs, and that certainly will come forward in the fall economic statement that Minister Freeland would bring forward in the coming weeks. Uh, I just want to go back briefly to uh, the the penalties or lack of penalties if governments don't reach these goals. Uh, You said democracy uh, is the ultimate. uh, The people will decide if a government doesn't reach goals and if they no longer want that government. What would stop then uh, the next government if it happens to be a different party from simply getting rid of this altogether? Well, I I think that's a really good question. And and the way I would answer that is to say any future government that would actually intend to repeal this is going to be saying to Canadians that they do not care about the environmental challenges. They do not care about the economic opportunities and competitiveness of the Canadian economy. They don't care about the future of their kids and their grandkids. I hazard a guess that in the context of what is going to happen going forward, I mean, to be honest with you, I would dare any future government to think about repealing this law. What this law says is governments need to care about climate. They need to care about it because Canadians expect that they will have an environmental plan to address the crisis and an economic plan to ensure that Canada will be prosperous in a low-carbon future. All right, Minister Wilkinson, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for your time. Not at all, thank you. Jonathan Wilkinson is the Minister of Environment and Climate Change. Well, a new report has been released. It's an independent report taking a look at what steps could be taken to stop the spread of COVID-19, particularly in long-term care facilities during the second wave as we see numbers continue to rise. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Terry Lake, who is the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Thank you so much for being with us. 
Thanks for having me again, Jill. Uh, We've been talking a lot, obviously, about people in long-term care, some of the most vulnerable in the province. Uh, With the numbers, as we've seen, spiking, we're expecting new orders to be announced later today. What is uh, your organization, the BC Care Providers Association, calling for as far as keeping people safe? Well, we did um, a survey of our members and uh, roundtables Uh, back in August when uh, people were just recovering from the first wave that impacted long-term care so much and, uh, you know, have put forward some recommendations to government. Uh, Most of these recommendations are uh, pretty common sense and some have already been adopted uh, by the government. But uh, we did see a lot of, um, you know, cross-communication going on between uh, officials in the ministry and the public health officer's office and in the uh, health uh, authorities through the medical health office. So we'd like to have more coordination there. And I think, you know, as time goes by and we all get more experience, that is happening. But really one thing that's been uh, overlooked, I think, uh, and the seniors advocate has spoken about this, is the isolation of our elders in care uh, being separated from their loved ones at the very last part of their lives. And so we really think we need to do more to provide uh, screening uh, using rapid response testing to allow families to reconnect with their loved ones and also to make sure we have an added layer of protection for staff coming into long-term care because that is how the virus is getting in. Well, you kind of answered my question because I was going to ask you, like you said, a lot of these recommendations, things have been implemented. They seem quite common sense. And it seems like we did all of that in the first wave, but we still have so many outbreaks at long-term care facilities. So how is the virus getting in? Well, study after study shows that uh, outbreaks in long-term care reflect the amount of community spread going on. So when we saw the amount of uh, infection in the community, particularly in Fraser Health, go up, it was not a surprise to see that it came into long-term care homes. And it's coming in through staff uh, that are asymptomatic. So they're being uh, screened in terms of, you know, asked how they feel and, you know, they're not feeling any symptoms, but there's no uh, rapid uh, result testing going on, uh, which, you know, we've used for the film industry, we've used for sports leagues, using it uh, at airports, and yet the staff going into long-term care may be asymptomatic and then taking the virus in, and it mirrors the prevalence in the community. So it's really not a surprise, and we do think that is one weak spot that must be um, examined and uh, addressed. Uh, have you had any response? Because it does seem, like you said, it's being used in other areas. We're seeing in, in incredibly beefed up testing in the places you said, you know, film industry and such. Have you had any response about the idea of bringing in rapid testing for healthcare workers in long-term care? Well, when we speak to public health officials about these antigen tests, uh, we're told that they're not as accurate as the PCR test, which is in fact the gold standard. Uh, But when they're used on a regular basis, uh, as they are, you know, in the situations I mentioned, the accuracy actually goes up because you may have a false positive one day, but but it won't be a false positive the next day or or a false negative won't be negative the next day because you're repeating it. And studies show that as you repeat that test every day, the accuracy approaches that accuracy of the PCR test. So, you know, I I think it's, it's something that we absolutely should be trying, even if it's you know, in a, in a study uh, or an academic sort of setting to see if it is worthwhile for future use. Uh, but in long-term care in the United States, for instance, it is commonly used. And in the U.S., we see about 
half the prevalence of COVID-19 in uh, nursing homes as we see here in Canada. Why is it, do you think, then, such a difference if it's staff members, and again, asymptomatic, and not not saying anything that, that people are in any way doing this on, on purpose, but if it's healthcare workers that are bringing the virus in unknowingly, why are we seeing such a spike in outbreaks in long-term care and not the same in other healthcare uh, facilities, such as hospitals and other places? Well, I mean, we have a much more vulnerable population in long-term care, obviously, older people with uh, pre-existing conditions. But we are seeing outbreaks in Burnaby Hospital and other acute care uh, facilities as well. So I think the long-term care nursing homes are the canary in the coal mine, if you will. Uh, and that's, again, just another reason to have another layer of protection as a screening protocol. You mentioned the isolation as well, and that is certainly uh, something that a lot of questions were raised during the first wave, that yes, we're keeping people alive, but if their quality of life is deteriorating, if they don't see family, if they're all alone, then really, the, what what is the point of someone's quality of life is so, is so deteriorated? So how can that be addressed as we deal with the second wave? Well, again, I think uh, having these uh, extra layers of protection are helpful than family members that really are essential caregivers uh, can go in and, uh, you know, the staff will feel that they're not at risk because people are being tested as they go in, uh, and that will help reconnect. I mean, it's gotten to the point where uh, music therapy has been discontinued. Uh, Elders in care aren't allowed to sing. I mean, could you imagine what life is like right now for people in long-term care? It is not a very high quality of life, and I absolutely think we need to be thinking about ways and means of uh, restoring that quality. Uh, have the other measures worked out or ha- have we reached the stage where the idea of the single site order policy that, that staff members aren't working at, at different uh, locations, uh, have those things uh, come into place? Are those operating as far as you know in, in all long-term care facilities? Yeah, the single site order has been beneficial in many ways, of course, uh, but there is a downside to it in that there isn't a casual pool of employees uh, to call upon when someone is sick. And as we see in Tabor Village, uh, with over 50 staff members uh, sick with COVID, you know, that means the pool of, of people to come in and fill those spots is very, very limited. And, you know, I, I don't want us to get to a situation where we're calling in the Army like they have to in, in Ontario. So um, the single site order is good, but we, we need to beef up and increase the recruitment of people into uh, this sector of healthcare, And uh, that means opening up immigration pathways, because I don't think we're going to be able to solve this problem with the Canada solution alone. Uh, do you get the sense as well there will be any changes to visitation in that we are expecting more orders to be released or to be released this afternoon? Uh, one of the big concerns, I know family members have said having the designated visitor, while it's great to have a visitor, it, it does cause a, lot of, cause a lot of stress for families who maybe have one or two children that would like to see an elderly parent. Uh, do you get the, the sense there will be any changes there, either a loosening of restrictions or going back to even tougher restrictions when it comes to visitation? Well, I, I know, having been there, that there's a temptation to want to clamp down again because, you know, it, it, it's um, a risk in some ways. But if you look at the data, this infection is not getting in from visitors. It's getting in from staff. Uh, the family caregivers that go on a regular basis 
are very well uh, versed in how to use uh, uh, personal protective equipment, how to stay safe. And in the community, Jill, they are being very safe themselves because the last thing they want to do is put their their uh, mother or father or other loved relative at risk when they go into to care for them. So I hope we don't see a clamp down on visitation. Uh, and if we do, I certainly hope that it doesn't affect all areas of the province because in the interior, on the island, in the north, we certainly don't have the same prevalence in the community. And I, I think it would be very sad to see families separated even more. All right, Terry Lake, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for your time. Well, a group of mayors, five mayors uh, from Delta, Surrey, White Rock, the township of Langley and the city of Langley uh, has sent a letter to uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry, to uh, the uh, health minister, Adrian Dix, and to Dr. Victoria Lee, president and CEO of the Fraser Health Authority, as well as the premier, asking for more information to be shared when it comes to COVID-19. And George Harvey, the mayor of Delta, joins me on the line now to talk a little bit more about this. Mayor Harvey, thanks so much for making some time for us. Oh, thank you for your interest. Uh, what were the concerns that led you to writing this letter? Well, the first concern we've been, I've actually been involved in five letters since May of this year to the Premier, Minister of Health, and Bonnie Henry, our doc, good doctor, uh, with regards to the need for more, more data. And three of the letters were by myself, and one was from um, Sab Dollywell, the chair of uh, Metro, on behalf of all the directors and mayors. And, the, and this last one, which is uh, involved the mayors of the Fraser, uh, Fraser Health area that is currently under a red zone. And what we wanted was the same uh, data that's been provided to the city of Vancouver, where they break the, the numbers down into six geogra- geographic areas of Vancouver. We're just asking for the same thing. And uh, you know Delta very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're divided between North Delta and South Delta, very different communities, um, but in very large areas, separated by Burns Bog. And people ask me as the mayor, well, what's, what's, our, what's the positive rates in South Delta? What is it in North Delta? I don't know. And the same questions are being asked uh, to the other mayors from their constituents and businesses. And what we want the data f- to do is to ensure we're doing everything possible as mayors to ensure that we're protecting our community health, which is our job, and that our job is also trying to keep our businesses open. And we're working very much with our Chamber of Commerce in Burnaby, and the other mayors are very, working very closely with their chambers and boards of trade. And collectively, we need the data so that we can work together to, again, try to keep our businesses open and try to ensure we're doing everything possible to keep our community safe. You know, Jill, when this is all over, and it will be, but not for a while, I, I don't want to look back and say, you know, we should have done more. I want to do as much as possible right now when we're under this current situation. Uh, so at this point, have you had any response then to any of the letters, including this latest one? No. I have had good discussions with Dr. Victoria Lee, and Fraser Health is doing a, an amazing job. And uh, Dr. Lee uh, advised me that we have to get permission from Victoria. And because it does seem strange, I could, I mean, we've heard the argument that it's about privacy and they don't want to give people, A, they don't want to give people a false sense of security if you suddenly think you're in a place with no cases or to target places where they might be higher. But I think you make a good point in that the information would be helpful in that people want to know where this virus is. Well, certainly we won't be getting information that says there's no cases. We have cases here. We have it in our, we've had it in our Delta Hospital. We have it right now in our fire department, right now in our police department, right now in our city services. It's happening. And all we're asking for is the same information that they are providing to Vancouver. And good on Vancouver. And they're using that, you know, that information to, as far as how they want to. Uh, but why are they doing for Vancouver? And why are they saying no to us? 
That's what I can't understand. And no one's been able to tell you that at this point? No. Uh, when you talk about businesses, too, because there's also been the conversations being had about regional, a regional approach to this in that if we know specifically where the cases are, and it comes up more, I think, with, say, Vancouver Island compared to the mainland with, with Vancouver Island or other parts of the province saying, well, why are you shutting it down or why do these rules apply to everybody? Uh, I mean, the current restrictions are Vancouver Coastal and Fraser, but would you like to see a more regional approach to this? I think we're doing extremely well working together as mayors now. Uh, we meet on a regular basis through a, a COVID uh, mayor's task force that uh, is set, uh, structured through Savdaliwa, through Metro. Uh, so we're in constant contact with each other, you know, both during the set down, uh, shutdowns and also the startups again. No, no, we just want to have the data for our cities. And it's just, that's all we're asking for. And I want, I want the data personally as the mayor and so does our chambers so that they can work with their members in areas where they see, oh, there's an increase because we want to do everything possible so that these businesses aren't going to be shut down. And if they're shut down, a lot of them, a lot of them are not going to be able to open up again. Uh, because in the letter, when it talks about guiding our decision-making and resource allocation uh, and as far as uh, the messaging as well, what do you think would change the most? If, if that specific data was released and you were able to see, okay, it's more prevalent here, it's more prevalent there, uh, would you be in a position to say we need to shut this down or would it be more, be more about the messaging? Uh, we would have the ability to shut down our own recreational facilities, our own city facilities, if they were in zones which were you know, very high, or as they call now, red zones. Uh, we can do that. Uh, we have the authority to do that. Um, we're the first city to actually implement masks in all our city facilities. Uh, we, we're trying to do everything possible, again, so that you know we can do the best job that we, we can under these pandemic situations. And I, I think this is a weakness, and it shouldn't be there because it's very well uh, known that across the country, Canada, it's, that information is provided even more granular than what we're asking for. Uh, when you talk about the masks too, and with Delta going forward with the mandatory masks, so how was that decision made then, even without the the specific information on the cases in Delta? Uh, we felt when this is during the reopening that we needed to do everything possible to protect our employees first, and also the people that are coming in our facilities. So we did implement the uh, the masks. We were one of the first. And you know what? This worked out extremely well. We use common sense uh, with regards to people that may have some type of medical situation where they can't wear a mask, uh, but overall it's been widely accepted. And, you know, walking around the hall now, like where she came from, it's the new norm that everybody's wearing a mask. They're always carrying it with them. So, no, we need to ensure we're doing everything possible. And if people criticize me at the end of this for doing too much, I'm, I'm okay with that. But if they criticize me for not doing enough, that's what I'm not going to allow. Uh, you mentioned, too, we, we knew about the outbreak at the Delta Hospital. That's something that was announced earlier. Uh, you say when, when you know it's everywhere then, but so how do you know that it is, say, in city services, in businesses, in, in recreational facilities? So how do you know that if you're not getting that particular data? Well, right now we screen all our employees and people that come in, and uh, we have a very strong um, policy and COVID plan that if our employees are feeling ill, et cetera, uh, they go, but once we have contacts where people have uh, shown that they are positives, then we work with Fraser Health on initiating uh, contract tracing. So we, we know that, but what, what we're asking for is that data is there. And again, this is the frustration. If it's available to Vancouver, why isn't it available to everybody else? If it's such a concern, why are they allowing it in one area and not the other? It's the inconsistency 
that our mayors are concerned about, including myself, of course. Uh, do you think there would be any negative side to releasing it? I can't see there was any negative side to releasing it for Vancouver. Hmm. Uh, when do you hope to get an answer, or are you, are you going to continue to write letters and hope that it leads to something, or what else can you do? Well, um, within the, you know, we'll wait a few a while to see if there is a response back from the province. And uh, if not, then we will continue. I'll continue caucusing with my fellow mayors and working together uh, to try to, you know, uh, get this information because all the mayors that signed the letter and many other mayors have contacted me in other areas of Metro Vancouver saying they would like to be included on another letter if we sent another one out. So we just keep working together, uh, and we are, as I mentioned before, the communication between the mayors and the jurisdictions here is extremely good. I'm very happy with it. Very supportive of the other mayors, and they're very supportive of what we're doing in Delta. And we just, it's just something that we need to ensure that we're, we have all the information possible to make the best decisions. Uh, I wanted to ask you as well, with the, the current restrictions that are set to uh, be done in, in a couple of days, the, the thinking is they will be extended. Uh, those include a recommendation that people in Fraser Health and people in Vancouver Coastal Health not travel in and out of the health authorities and to limit their travel to essential travel only. Are you getting the impression that people are following that rule? Oh, I know I am. Um, I was looking much forward to a break last, last week. Uh, up at Whistler for a few days and we cancelled. I know other people have cancelled uh, similar breaks away from work and we have to follow the direction of the uh, of the province here and, and, the, and the experts and uh, that's what you know I'm doing personally and that's what we're doing as a city and that's what we're doing as city staff and a council. So uh, I'm just uh, you know sorting on pins and needles like everybody else saying okay what's going to come down at three o'clock uh, but the province has to do what they have to do to ensure we're trying to bend the curve. Because, you know, people have been talking, well, there's a vaccine coming around, you know, really soon. Well, that's not going to be available for months. And this, this, this virus isn't waiting for the vaccine. It's, it's exploding. All right. Well, Mayor Harvey, we'll leave it there. Like you said, we are waiting to see what is going to be announced at 3 p.m. Uh, let us know if anything changes with response uh, to that request for that information. And uh, in the meantime, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Thank you, and stay healthy and wear your mask. Thank you. But first, we wanted to lighten things up a little bit. And a few years ago, we were able to touch base with Edward and Jillian Campbell, who are otherwise known as Mr. and Mrs. Claus. Not the real Mr. and Mrs. Claus, obviously, in the North Pole. You could call them Santa's helpers because they are in charge of finding the perfect people to be Santa's representatives in malls and in public. And as you can imagine, because of the pandemic, things are a little bit different this year. So we wanted to touch base with them and see how things are going and how things are, in fact, a little bit different. And let's check in with them right now. Thank you so much for joining us again. Oh, well, thanks for inviting us. We're delighted, aren't we, Edward? Yes, we are. It's nice to talk to you again, Jill. Well, the last time we talked to you, it was under, I guess, what we would call normal circumstances. Uh, wanted to talk to you about the fact that you are the recruiters for all the mall Santas and the Santas that we see uh, popping around at different places this time of year. Uh, but we wanted to talk to you again because I would imagine, like everything else, this year is a bit of a challenge for you both. Well, it is, actually. And somebody... Uh, last year we had about 30 Santas and um, some with real beards and some with, as they say, design beards because it sounds posher. Um, yeah, but you know, um, this, this year a lot of them, uh, I'm so nervous 
but we're working in, with conjun- in conjunction with um, Total Entertainment, Al Gerlich, and also Kelly from Siegel. And we're doing virtual visits, and some of the centers um, are really keen to, they're really tech savvy, you know. Uh, we're not that good, but we're learning, aren't we, Edward? Yes, we're fumbling our way through. <laughs> <laughs> Did I tell you that Santa's my second husband much better than the first? <laughs> Very nice. He re- no, he really is. He's wonderful. He's adapted because he used to own and train racehorses. And it's been one continuous round of pleasure. <laughs> so what's it like? Be- oh, sorry. Sorry. I was just wondering, because you do recruit Santas, and, and I know we've talked about this before, that you have that knack of being able to look at somebody and see if they would make a good Santa. How is that? that I would imagine that's been though difficult, A, with people, a lot of people wearing masks, so you can't really see their faces, and doing it during a pandemic. Yes, it's true, but I always look at people's eyes. You can tell a lot from people's eyes. If they look at you and right in your eyes, you know, they're open and everything. But, you know, I'm such a picky person. When we are checking out them, they've got to have nice teeth, you know, and be immaculate and all that malarkey. And um, we have quite a list of what they should be like. And I haven't bothered too much this year because the ones we have are the ones that we have about 15 that are really, that's including Edward, of course, and my son, Richard, he is also a Santa Claus. And we're also working with um, John Donnelly, and he's going to be doing that um, wonderful drive-through at uh, the P&E. He's in charge of all that. And we have two Santas going to be alternating, aren't they, Edward? Yes. And, um, uh, and we have a spare just in case. You never know. And he's built this amazing contraption. So it looks as if Santa's in the air. And it's a drive-through, and I think it's twenty bucks for a car load, and that's wonderful for big families, isn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Are you there, Jill? Yes, yes. No, I'm just trying to imagine that. I'm picturing it. It sounds amazing, and also so great that that you've been able to adapt and find ways to to make it still happen and to bring this joy to people this year. Well, normally every year we do that um, fundraiser for St. Paul's Hospital. And um, we're normally in a tent across the road from St. Paul's. And then people come in. They have one of those greenback things, you know, and they have all these wonderful pictures behind us. But it's, it's just, um, it, it's just a, a beautiful thing. You know, they either have a Santa's workshop or, or the North Pole or whatever, you know. Uh, but this time, um, Bunny Bong from St. Paul's Hospital, um, she said, would you mind coming in to the studio and doing this because, you know, it's a good fundraiser. And we said, oh, sure, we'll do that. So they sent us the script and everything. And um, it was it was really quite interesting, wasn't it? And, of course, there was a plain background. And, uh, and then afterwards, when we saw it, when we saw what we'd said, and they had a teleprompter. Thank goodness they had a teleprompter trying to remember stuff at our age, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, we had so much fun doing that. And that's going to be released as a fundraiser. And it's going all over Canada in the Yukon. It's going everywhere. And the other thing we did with this virtual thing, again with John Donnelly, out at Surrey, we normally do the Christmas um, Christmas lighting. You know, it's, it's fabulous out there. Thousands of people. And Edward's normally in the atrium having the free photographs with everybody. And I'm on a stage with John Donnelly. And we alternate, you know, um, like emceeing. We share the whole thing together. He's a joy to work with and for. 
and he's the one that's doing the P&E one. But when we were doing this Christmas one um, for the tree out at Surrey, we had to go in a studio, but it was all COVID protection and everything was so well done, wasn't it, Edward? And that will be released, you know, too. So everybody will still see the fabulous tree. And then he's got acts, different acts, and they've all been in there virtually, uh, doing that everything's recorded so it'll more or less be the same but it'll be on a, I think on a big tv screen i don't know all the details but it's it's a fabulous idea oh yeah are you still doing as well i, I know that some malls have canceled santa in person altogether others are doing kind of a distanced santa in person with plexiglass are you involved in any of those oh yes we are and um uh, i mean santa's protection is paramount because they're all old guys um, no offense, Edward. Mm. <laughs> um, I said, you know, when we, we were talking to all these different people, and as I, there again, uh, Kelly from Seagull, she books a lot of malls as well. And we normally do about six malls, don't we, Edward? Yeah. And it's like in a, a bubble. Um, and, and we're also doing the New Westminster um, one as well, that, that mall. But it's all plexiglass. And no, no reaction with the children. You could, they can wave mm. and all that. And they have this fantastic seat in the front. And um, so it's nowhere near Santa. And the children, the families, and he's behind. So it's an optical illusion, actually. Mm. And it works just fantastic, doesn't it, Edward? Yeah, so there'll be no touching or the children won't be on Santa's knee. But with the camera, it will look like they're standing right beside <laughs> Santa. Oh, nice. And they'll still be able to Where speak? Where the world is away. <laughs> and they'll still be able to talk to Santa and, and, and put their wishes through? Yes. Oh, yes, yeah. I'm disappointed. You know what I love doing? Well, Edward does, too. I mean, Santa does, too. We, we do a lot of um, uh, daycares. I mm. love doing daycares because I have three and four-year-olds, and they like to touch Santa's beard when we go in because it's got this big, bushy beard. But we won't be able to do that this year. And, you know, we do little parades and we have little hats and noisemakers and bells and everything. We do the night before Christmas. We have our elves. We can't do any of that this year. And sometimes these little ones, you know, if you put a mic in their hand, at three, four years old, a mic, their face lights up. Mummies and daddies love it. Mm. And it's just a lovely happening. And we've been doing one of these um, daycares for Louise in Port Coquitlam for 27 years. And we're going to really miss doing that, aren't we, Edward? Yes. We will miss the, the being with the children because when we were doing these virtual shows at St. Paul's and the Surrey tree lighting, um, there we were doing our, our little skits to an empty room. We were... Uh, Spreading Christmas joy to an empty room. To nobody. <laughs> but anyway, it's going to work out, Jill. It's going to be fantastic, honestly. Well, it sounds like it, and the energy is certainly is still there, and it sounds like you're both making the best of it, and it's still, like you said, it's still going to work out. It's just going to look different, and hopefully next year we can have this conversation again, and we'll be talking about things looking uh, more like we're used to them looking. Uh, we'll leave it there. I know you're very busy. Thanks, both of you, so much for coming and chatting with me again. I appreciate it so much. We do appreciate the opportunity, don't we, Edward? Yes, we certainly do. We're sending you and everybody big hugs and kisses and happy Christmas and be kind to each other. And don't forget to wash your hands and wear your mask. Right, Santa? Right. Ho, 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 ho. Merry Christmas.